Hello, the Digi Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another special episode for you. But first, a very important announcement. For those of you who want to help support the podcast financially, you can do so now at Patreon, and you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy and go to our page, support us. There's some really great incentives there. As a side note, we are moving all of our Coffee Talk episodes to be exclusive for Patreon supporters. In addition, we are creating a brand new podcast for Patreon supporters about church architecture with Dennis and I. So check those out at patreon.com slash liturgy. And we already have three supporters. So shout out to Joshua Bickle, Michael Hallbrook, and David Niles. Thank you so much for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash liturgy. And this week, we are very honored to meet with Father Andrew Menke. And he's important because he is the executive director of the Secretariat of Divine Worship for the USCCB. So we get a little bit of insider information this week from somebody who is actually involved in the decision-making process about liturgy in the United States. So without further ado, episode 43 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Even though summer is usually our, what do we call it? Our hiatus. Our hiatus usually, is broken. Yeah. That yeah. sounds awfully medical, doesn't it? <laughs> that does. I broke my hiatus, <laughs> and uh, I need to get it fixed. So well, the hiatus is now officially broken in the good way because we have a very special guest. Father Andrew Minky, originally a priest of Lincoln, Nebraska, Still correct? A Still, Still a priest. Oh, yeah, well, originally a priest. <laughs> but Still he's been priest. plucked out of his home diocese to what I would call an exalted position, although I'm sure mm, he would not. I wouldn't go that As far. executive secretary? No, executive, executive director. Director of the Secretariat for Divine, Divine worship. worship, which is a subset of... The Bishops Committee on Divine Worship, or works together with the Bishops Committee on works Divine Worship? Works for the Bishops Committee on Divine Worship. And that is all under the larger umbrella of the USCC. United States Conference of Catholic, Catholic Bishops. Bishops. Catholics are not like the United States. We don't have three-letter agencies. We have I like eight-letter agencies. So FYI, this is the BCDW of the USCC. Oh, my goodness. But part of the B, not BCL Something anymore. Like yeah. yeah, that's pretty good. Now, that's interesting. A few years ago, they changed it from L to DW, right? It used to be called... Bishop's Committee on the Liturgy, and then it became Divine Worship at some point. I'm not sure know, when that happened. Do you know I what that's, what's behind that? Was there some kind of rethinking the, theologically? I, I don't know if it was theological. Maybe it's just influence of the way Rome names its congregation for Divine Worship. Uh-huh. I suspect they wanted to follow their lead, but so I'm not brand sure. consistency. I'm though. not sure about that. <laughs> brand consistency from Rome. All right. Yeah. Well, you know. I like that. I and like it a lot. Father Mickey is here to do a Hillenbrand Distinguished Lecture for our summer session. Is he distinguished or is the lecture distinguished? We have, it's one. Say, you couldn't find anyone distinguished. So. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll give a distinguished lecture. We used to, Father Martis and I used to argue, is it the lecture that's distinguished or the lecturer that's distinguished? But hopefully it's, hopefully it's both. We know, we know you're distinguished by uh, 
being plucked out of obscurity to, to do this. So, so anyway, when we have uh, summer school and our students will be office of worship directors or priests who are interested in liturgy or music directors, it's good to go straight to the source of what is hot in the world of liturgical, <laughs> what do we call it, bureaucracy? Chasubles are so hot right now. <laughs> in this time in, in July. July. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you have any thoughts on what you're going to talk about tonight? I'm going to give an overview of my office, what we do, what our duties are, and then give a summary of what we've done recently and what projects are in the works right now. Okay, here's the on most the important question. Mm. How many letters do you get from cranky old people saying, my pastor is doing this? Well, what about cranky young people? Well, young people too, yeah. Get those too. Middle-aged. Young people are never cranky. Come yes. on. We don't get many letters nowadays. We get lots of emails. Oh, really? I think back How many day, texts I, do you get? Uh, no texts. We don't have a number for texts. But we get uh, quite a few emails, probably yeah. at least half a dozen a day. Is there typically. a pretty common complaint that people hmm. lodge with you, even if you're not the person to lodge them with? Uh, as you said, uh, Complaints about their priest, the way he says mass, or if he's doing something he shouldn't be doing. What's the What's the protocol with that? What do you have to do when somebody says that? You just we don't have the first protocol is to remind people that we don't have any authority. The bishop's conference doesn't have authority over your parish. The bishop's conference can't tell your pastor what to do. So we try to give a fair hearing to what their question is and maybe direct them to what would seem to be a correct answer, if that I'm, seems I mean, appropriate, I'm sure there, but by and large, we just refer them back to their own bishop. I'm sure there are some legitimate concerns that might be alarming. Oh, yeah, sometimes, yeah, very clearly people will write in, and they're clearly complaining about something that's a problematic mm -hmm. situation, but sometimes they're being overly picky, and they don't realize that there are legitimate options that can be taken, mm -hmm. so we try to, we can clarify those things to be helpful, but by and large, we have to refer them back to their own bishop. They probably think of you as like the Supreme Court of Liturgy rather than Some people than think the that, yeah, and we make it very clear that we're not. Yeah. And we can help you find what the answers are, but we're not the judge or we're not the police. Supreme Court of Liturgy, I well, like yeah, that. Sure. <laughs> you know, if your local bishop is one thing, then the Washington bishops, whatever, must be the next thing up, right? But right. what it's actually is the, um, the legislative or other kind of authority that a bishop's conference has? If there is Some way to do what would you say you do that <laughs> more authoritatively there are certain things that the uh, church law gives to the conferences to approve translations for example the local bishop can't decide what the translation of the mass is the conference as a whole has to decide well that was that recently didn't Pope Francis say something about you know allowing there to be a two-way street? He did. Well, he's given more authority to the bishops' conferences as opposed to the Congregation for Divine Worship in Rome. So right. yes. But Even though we answered a question about that on a podcast, I'm not sure. That I listened when Chris answered it. Do you know the distinction? Is that the recognitio is not is different from confirmatio? What's the difference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know the difference? Confirmatio is the approval of a translation and. The new legislation says that, by and large, the Holy See should just approve the translation that the bishops submit. Well, they don't, use, the they don't use the word rubber stamp, but it's kind of implied it's rubber stamp. Recognitio is a little higher level approval. If the bishops want to modify the Latin book, if they want to introduce changes that are not found in the Latin books, that requires the recognitio, which is a more difficult, maybe we could say, level of, of, uh, of approval from Rome. Okay. That's a, good, that's a good word choice. I think it's safe. Is that safe? I think. Yeah, Hope absolutely. So. so what's hot on your desk these days? <laughs> mm -hmm. What's hot on my desk? That you can tell. Right now. We'll turn the microphone down when you tell us the secret <laughs> stuff. <laughs> the um, right for the dedication of a church of a brand new translation that's that was approved right. by Rome, and 
and um, we are working with the publisher, and it should go to print within a week or so. Okay. Another burning question. Is it going to have ugly pictures in it? Why do all official church documents have ugly pictures? Oh, you're talking to the wrong guy. <laughs> Dennis is a... I don't think this, and this will have any art at oh, all. I guess that's better than the usual sta- low standard we get from... Is no <laughs> art better than bad art, Dennis? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, is no poison better than poison? It's just yes, you know. <laughs> What's better, a poison mushroom or no mushroom? I'd say a poison. It's I mean, not no always one. bad. Well, that's true. That's true. The cover has a picture of Jesus, but it's, it shouldn't offend you, I well, hope. Well, it depends. We'll wait and see. So uh, I did see somewhere along the line, I don't know, it was the gray book or the white book or one of the, one of the translation things that I think someone has been sent here to review it. And uh, I noticed there weren't really a lot of big changes between the old translation and the new translation. There were a few, but it, was, it wasn't as di- not, different as massive, like the, the no. missile. Yeah. For some reason, the right of dedication was always a provisional translation it was never i'm not sure exactly what that means it was never formally voted upon by or never formally approved i'm not sure exactly how that worked so this is the first time it's been gone through the whole process of the translation with the bishops the chance to review it and so forth it's not going to be a radical change it's the same latin base text as before this will have music though for the first time and that's kind uh-huh. of exciting yeah uh, isil worked with some musicians to put together chants and they're based on the ancient Gregorian chants, and the texts are, are magnificent, and gates lift higher, and has these kinds of things that, that are perfect for the context of a uh, dedication of a church. And, and I guess so they that's had, kind of exciting. The old one didn't, never had any music, and you were just left to your own devices to find music if you were dedicating a church. Well, now you've got some very beautiful chants, simple to sing, with psalms that are appropriate. Um, so I think that's a great improvement. And different things brought into conformity with the missile, like the end with your spirit. Right, and those right kinds of yeah, things of course, too. all that okay. stuff is consistent now. So. Okay, well, that's cool. So is, so is it um, pretty rare to have uh, designated music for a rite? No, I think most of the rites would have, I guess it depends on which one we're talking about. But there's no like set music for the rite of baptism or... The right of marriage. Um, well, there's music there, settings there, for the prefaces and things, the missile, right? Yeah. yeah, settings for that. There are chants. If it's a mass, there would be an introit and so forth. Um, we've kind of gotten in the habit of just pulling out the hymnal, haven't we? And singing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Kind of so, mm-hmm. so yeah, this might be a little bit of a different um, emphasis than what we've seen in so is it, books. Is there a timeline for that to be? I mean, everything's kind of slow, right? Is that yeah, this one's coming quick, though. It's going off to the printer probably next week, so sometime, oh, wow. sometime this fall. It that is hot off the press. press. That's hot right, right now. It's, it's supposed to be out on the right, Six weeks, um, eight weeks, dedication of John Ladder and the feast. Isn't that the date? That's thing? the official date. Yeah. It's kind of an arbitrary date, but uh, the book, you should be able to buy well, it. Well, that's a theological um, date, right? Well, the, the yeah. church date. Yeah. yeah. doesn't mean literally it's for sale that day. But right, right, right. So the printer and, yeah, right, exactly. And then... I understand that there is talks of the translation for the um, Liturgy of the Hours. Yeah, that's that's an ongoing project. Been hearing about that for project. years. Yeah, and you'll yeah. be hearing about it probably. I've only years. been hearing about it for a couple of years, but that's as long as I've been working at the Liturgical Institute. So, yeah, I, I throw out 2022 as a date when it might be finished, but even that's a bit of a guess, and that's some relies on some assumptions. But that would, would that mean translating but, all the Office of Readings, all the Patristic Readings? Well, that was, as well? they decided before I ever came. They set a, a scope of work for the project, and they decided that they would not try to retranslate the Office of Readings. 
because it's so complicated. If you think of what goes into the Office of Readings, you have so many languages. It's not all sure there's a Latin edition, but a lot of them actually came from Greek or English or whatever. I mean, they come from all different saints and so forth. And so many genres of writing that it becomes a massive, massive translation project. So I decided by and large, the current plan anyway, is to not not change the Office of Readings. Well, almost everything else is being retranslated. And maybe, so here's the next hot off the press item is the Ooh. hymnody, the <laughs> yes. hymnody. So in November, the bishops, um, the plan is that they will vote on half of the hymns from the Liturgy of the Hours, which is exciting because the current breviary that everyone has basically jettisoned all the Latin hymns mm-hmm. in favor of contemporary things and more popular things and so forth. And they're not always proper to the hour of the day, right? No, it's just they're not. a general no. hymn, right? And some of them are very beautiful and, and traditional, and some of them are kind of strange and obscure, and no one ever sings them, as far as I know. So the bishops directed that they wanted the actual Latin hymns from the, the Latin breviary to be translated into English, and ISIL's been working very hard at that. And, and I think that's going to be a magnificent improvement. Ooh. I like that. Those are the same ones we have in the Mundelein Psalter, correct? Probably so. Because we have the the two-week cycle Mm -hmm. of evening. Right, right, right. And somebody, one of our students explained to me, and I've been singing the Mundelein Psalter for years, and you just sort of sing what's in front of you, and sometimes you don't think about it, but he was talking about how they follow the days of the week, and the morning prayer of Sunday is about the stars and the sky, Mm -hmm. and then the next day is about birds and fish, and the next day is about this and that. There's more of a plan than you might realize, right? yeah, Yeah, and the morning prayer ones are about the sunrise and the evening prayer ones are about the sun going down like how imagine that, right? imagine that <laughs> makes sense to me oh and so full of scriptural allusions and theological concepts and things i think it'll be a great great improvement presuming everything goes as planned so where do the melodies come from for those other traditional melodic settings for those so they have tried to follow the rhythm of the latin hymns which means you ought to be able to sing them to the gregorian melodies and but then they're also I'm not a musician. Who's a musician here? One of you guys? Well, Dennis is a When a hymn has eight 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 at the bottom, right, that's the, the meter. Yep. Meter. Okay, so they're all assigned those meters, which means you can. Oh, uh, we're in the metric system for the Gregorian. Chair. Well, we are. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> Most of our, I think, all the proper Latin hymns, almost all of them, or many, many of them, are what they call uh, long meter. There's. Yeah, you know more about it than I do. So you can always substitute one melody for another. Five years of piano lessons against my will. That's as far as I got. <laughs> Uh, so you'll be able to sing them to melodies that are more familiar as well. So I've been to um, ISIL's headquarters in Washington, and they've done a demonstration for us of how this will work. So Do you have a little red phone over to the ISIL thing when, the, when it rings? Mm-hmm. Speed dial. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so they've showed how you can take these new translations and sing them to a hymn that, that everyone would know from traditional hymnody, but you can also sing, if you know Gregorian chants, mm-hmm. you can use the Gregorian melody very well. And uh, so I think that's going to be a, a magnificent improvement in the Liturgy right. of the Hours. One of the famous long meter, that means so many beats per line is uh, Old Hundredth, you know, da 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 And it, I always right. think that's like slogging through mud because people sing it, da 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 Like a creation of our God and King, is that one? No, blessings flow, da 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 here below. Oh, yeah. Okay, but in a in a chant proper chant melody, things move, you know. So the traditional metrical hymnody now seems to me so slow and so un-Roman. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very Germanic, like Prussian soldiers, you know, marching <laughs> through the mud. I have Prussian ancestors. Oh, was that a couple? Hey, they're, no, they're that great. was very <laughs> insulting. You should always ask if somebody's <laughs> Prussian first. Prussians always. are supposed to be like Prussians, yeah. but. Uh, Okay, so so half of those are going to be voted on this year. 
In November, that's the plan, yes. Okay, and then the other half the next year or years right. after that? So it's such a massive book that it's being translated in stages and by parts, and we're taking it to the bishops for vote part by part rather than doing it all and then taking them to take it to them at once. And part of the idea, it's practical, it breaks it up into smaller pieces, but it also, if the bishops didn't like it and didn't approve it, then it, I suppose it would be a waste of time to do the entire thing and then mm -hmm. just have it rejected. So if they were... Uh, if they didn't approve things, and we'd have to go back and start over and re-examine our approach and get some direction okay. from them. But we had the first vote, they had the first vote this last June on uh, a group of antiphons, Magnificat and Benedictus antiphons, and petitions, and they overwhelmingly passed them. So the first group of texts uh, that ISIL translated for the bereavery have been approved by the bishops, so that's a good sign. So it looks like the project's gonna move forward. Okay, here's the question that could get you fired. Are you ready? fire away. No, <laughs> no, don't fire. I've met a lot of priests. I've met a lot of bishops, nice people, love God, love Jesus. Some are moral theologians, right? Some are whatever they're interested in scripture. Not many of them are liturgy people. You know, they celebrate the liturgy, but you wouldn't say their, their training was in that. How hard is it to work with a body that's largely doesn't have academic expertise mm -hmm. in the field that you have to be very nuanced about? Right, I would make that distinction, um, which you sort of implied that formal training. So they're liturgy people, I think, in the sense right, because they pray the liturgy. They're liturgists. We had a meeting with our committee, and um, someone, not one of the bishops, started to say that uh, the um, we need to have more input from priests because they're the ones who say the mass. And one of the bishops observed. Well, I say mass yeah, every day. Yeah, so do they. <laughs> <laughs> I say mass every day for a congregation. So I think I know a little bit about this, right? <laughs> and, and at one point was a priest. Right, right. right? So, so I would make that distinction. I think most bishops have a great love for the liturgy, and uh, it's an important part of what they do. And it's when they have most direct contact with their people is in the context of the liturgy. So, so with that, no, I think that's part of why my office exists so that uh, they can have people to advise them and keep them, keep them abreast of what's new and what's coming down the pipe and have um, a sense of the academic side of it, if you will. So we try to provide that for them. But there are a handful of bishops in the conference who actually did their academic work in, in liturgy. And so there are some of them who can um, speak with some experience. Mm -hmm. But just the priests in general, not a lot of them it's, a, it's a kind of a niche. It's a niche mm -hmm. field of study. More, Don't we know it here? More, the yeah, well, exactly. More priests um, would have come from, say, a canon law background or a systematic theology background. Those things are more useful. How, how often does canon law intersect with um, liturgical rites? Quite a bit, more than you might think. It's, it's on my to-do list to learn more about that. We get questions all the time. What can a bishop do and what can't he do in terms of liturgical practices in his oh, diocese. And right. those are tricky questions. Because a lot of times it says the local ordinary will regulate this, but then right. does that mean he can violate universal well, church right. law? Right, if universal law says something, can a bishop overrule that? Right. And more often, though, you run into cases where it's kind of a gray area, and the law doesn't seem to explicitly say what you're supposed to do. So that's where bishop's authority can be very important. Or you run into some odd circumstances, and then you need a bishop to be able to step in and change some things. Have you ever had any really intriguingly odd questions? 
Intriguing liturgical questions. Oh, yeah. We get them a lot, you know, too. Like my, my husband has four legs and he can't walk up to receive communion and can he <laughs> receive it in the pew? You know, something like that. Four legs. You know, who knows what? What? Yeah. Um, I'm sure we have. Nothing comes to mind right now. I became the director a year and a half ago, and from that point, and someone else is the front line of answering the questions that come to us. Ah, so, okay. so I used to answer these every day. And I is, it, is it Chris? Is he questions. the front line for you? No. Chris calls me when he has questions now and then, though. Ooh. Because Chris, you know, is from Lincoln also. Did, mm-hmm. did, he was in seminary. Were you in seminary together? We did overlap one year. Okay. Chris was in seminary? He was. Man. That's before th- the eight think, children, fortunately. You think you know someone. <laughs> played ice hockey in Toronto when we were college seminarians. Oh, that's right. He was pretty tough. At the oratory? Was pretty tough. He's not so tough anymore. Has it gone soft? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, you should see him with his little girls in his lap. He's just a big, <laughs> fluffy teddy bear of a marshmallow of a dad. Yeah, whenever... Chris Chris doesn't show up for things sometimes. We've been trying to get him to come to more podcasts this summer, and so what we decided is that we're just going to keep inviting his friends to come on the podcast until he's like, fine, I'll, I'll come back, so... So if we we'll tell have, stories about him, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah, that, gotcha, will, gotcha. that will incentivize him to come back and record more Liturgy Guide <laughs> podcasts. But we know you're not just a flunky, right? You're not just a guy pushing papers around. You have a doctorate in liturgy from Son of Summer? Almost a doctorate. Okay, you're getting close. Almost there. So as you study and as you hear kind of at the national level, what's out there, what are the problems, what are the issues, like where do you think... Say the average parish needs formation. What what are we getting wrong or not getting right enough? Hmm, that's a big question. I know what I would say, but you know, you would you're say, the experts. Well, no, I'm up curious to hear. Dennis what just say. wants prettier churches. That well, that's I think well the architecture maybe. Yeah, um, I think the music is a big thing. I really, I think there's a more of a push now towards a real sacred music which ought to be a no-brainer, but it's not, as we know. I think there's a lot more interest in that and people pushing for that, and I think that's an exciting development. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the church documents, they all seem to say the number one thing is the graduale romanum, which is very complicated in Latin, right? And Mm -hmm. if you can't do that, the graduale simplex, which is still complicated Mm -hmm. and in Latin. Is it really realistic for those to be the norms of, of the church? Well, I mean, they give other options too. But. Trying to do English versions of those right. things, right? right. And, and we do it here at the Liturgical Institute every kind day. Kind of a growing movement, I think. Right. That's a good. I think that's a good sign. But even then, I think people are moving. At least some people towards even hymnody, just a better hymnody or a more sacred hymnody. A sense that we're coming here to worship God when we go to Mass. I think that's... Jesse sent me a link about the uh, the My, oh, Little, that, Pony, that, my that, Little Pony Mass today. That was really good. It sounds painful. It's one particular uh, well-known, award-winning, uh, famous composer, composer. Mm-hmm. who does... It's called... I forget what the Mass setting is called, but it's My Little Pony, My Little Glory to God. It, glory it was to almost God. Note, it was almost note for note. Yeah, the, the My Little Pony. intro to uh, My Little Pony theme song. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but yeah, I mean, and then the other thing that, um, as I talk to more young adults about liturgy and, and all this stuff, one of the things that people really want to know about is mutual enrichment and how these two mm-hmm. uh, forms are living with each other and, well, you know, where people want to go and what do they want to see in the liturgy. And, um, you know, I think, I think uh, people who want a better Novus Ordo tend to just go to the extraordinary form because it's something 
uh, that is beautiful and something that mm-hmm. shows more sacredness. And I think music is a big part right. of that. It's safe because they know they won't be offended, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if it's not their principle. It'll be interesting choice. to see how this plays out in the next oh, sure. decade, 20 years, whatever. It's, it's got a lot of promise. It's got some things that may, maybe make us a little bit nervous, but I think... Um, I think it has a lot of promise. I'm curious to see how it develops. It's going to be interesting. I hear from bishops regularly who get frustrated with even a, let's say, a very traditional-minded bishop who will mm-hmm. have seminarians who become very, very enamored of the extraordinary form, and then they get ordained, and then they don't even want to do the Novus Ordo anymore, and then you're a bishop, and I just spent $200,000 educating sure, this yeah. guy, and all of a sudden I can't even send him to a parish because he won't do the normal masses for the people. And I have a... A tremendous respect for the extraordinary form, mm-hmm. and um, I think we need to learn more from it, frankly. But at the same time, I can't imagine why a guy would go through all these years of seminary and then all of a sudden tell his bishop he refuses to do no sort of mass. That so doesn't make any sense at all. So there has to be a healthy mutual enrichment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't count as far from a millennial because I'm a Gen Xer, I think I was kind of a millennial before there were millennials. So I, well, I was six, 16. Millennials are the worst. <laughs> At 16 years old, I was writing you know, essays in English class in high school about the Latin mass and whatever. So most people weren't doing that when they're 16. Um, but I went through a phase where I was like, oh, my parish stinks and Vatican II, blah, blah, blah. You know, all the things that people say. You go through a kind of an immature phase when you discover the richness of the tradition and then you're denied it. But what I think brought me out of that was a mature willingness for to read what was the liturgical movement about, what were the real liturgical abuses that were normative, how come every great scholar pretty much thought that liturgical reform was necessary before Vatican II? And if you just shut down that discussion and say, oh, you're a romantic, backward-looking traditionalist, shut up and do what we tell you, then it doesn't give people the chance to understand, and then they get fixed in the either-or, as opposed to a good, nuanced right. thing, which is why I think it's... And you're not, you're not creating a solution, you're just creating another problem. Right. For a seminary or a bishop to say, stop it, instead of, can we talk about this, mm-hmm. it doesn't really help people, as they like to say, integrate all of this stuff, you know, like a seminary. Right. Right. Are you talking about liturgical polarization? I guess I am. Oh, okay. Is that something you've spoken about? No, I just, no, it's just, no. He likes to throw out big words whenever he can. (laughs) Yeah, I need, with with these uh, big intellectual people that are on this podcast, I need to sound as smart as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else hot on your desk these days you're going to talk about tonight? Hmm. Those are the big things. I just imagine your office is really exciting all the time, I guess. We're always, that's because you're never nerd. Visited. That's why. We're always busy. You have to come visit us sometime. We're always busy. I don't know if it's always exciting. Where, where is your office? Big, in it's in Washington, right okay. near Catholic University's okay. uh, campus. Um, my next big headache, I think, is the um, RCIA. Ooh. Soon to be called the OCIA. You just heard it here. What? Say that again. Order of Christian Initiation of Adults. Oh. I have to learn a new vocabulary. But How the, is a right uh, different from an order? Is that a more well, precise I, word? I, I feel yeah. like we could talk a lot about this, so let's we keep probably, talking about it. Yeah, let's not talk about it too much. Oh, okay. It gives me a headache to think Ostia. about. Um, it's, uh, ISIL just finished their translation of it, and it's is all this been the, finished. The right? so this is the This is the whole thing. The okay. RCIA has what oh. we call the RCIA. So now we've got a new translation from them. But... Uh, of all the Latin liturgical books, this is probably the one that was rearranged the most and supplemented the most when it was put into English. So if you look at the English book next to the Latin book, 
there's a lot of differences. Oh, wow. People would say that the, the Latin edition is not very user-friendly. And I think people in this country have probably used the RCIA book more than anyone in the world. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine Italians? It's not like they have a whole lot of Protestants becoming Catholic or Catholics, mm -hmm. right? So in this country where we, we have Catholics such a mix, Catholic. we have, yeah, our parishes use this book probably far more than anyone else in the world. And, and the Latin book is probably not all that user-friendly, and so it was mm -hmm. modified. So we have to kind of re-examine that and see, is the current book in need of any any modifications, what we do, do we want to just keep what we've been doing just with a new translation or is there anything that we need to adjust and, and improve and so forth? Generally, my the sense that we've, we've gotten is that there's nothing really wrong, seriously wrong with the liturgical book. That That's when a good have, start. When people have trouble with the RCI, it's more the pastoral and practical questions and when people come and they have previous marriages and those kinds of, if you haven't addressed those kind of questions, that's when RCA becomes a complicated process. So and I wonder too, if, you know, the people who thought about RCA the first time were maybe in a dreamy romantic vision of what the early church was like, you know, we're going to put the catechumens separate and they won't get to see the mysteries when these people have been to, even if they're not Catholic yeah. yet, they've probably been to weddings and first be a little bit churches and say, so, well, we're going to dismiss you <laughs> because you're not ready to come into the mysteries. That you've already encountered a hundred times in your life, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I don't pretend any expertise, great expertise in it. So uh, anyway, that'll be my next big, our next big. There's still some really great stuff in there, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about. There's a very good foundation. It's just a matter of going over it again and just making sure. Right. There's some little little nerdy things where it, it doesn't correspond exactly with what's in the missal, so we'll try to address some of those things and, and uh, try to make it all consistent, but. But you know, you, there are a lot of very good people who are very devoted to helping people become Catholic. A mm -hmm. lot of parishes put a lot of energy into mm -hmm. their RCA program, whatever they want to call it. And, and so we want to make sure that we, whatever the book we end up producing comes out being very helpful for them. So we'll have American adaptations in it still? Presumably, yeah. but those are the questions that we have to, have to face. We had, um, uh, Bishop Joseph Perry, who's auxiliary bishop mm -hmm. in Chicago, um, come speak at one of our conferences recently, and he mentioned that the the mass itself is a very strong uh, evangelization tool, and and learning about the rites and learning about that stuff. So you know, engaging that in liturgical catechesis before the uh, RCIA is very important. Mm -hmm. But then you know, obviously the rite itself, and uh, you know what's being said and what's being uh, what imagery is being used is also very important in that process, too. Yeah, I would agree. You, there's nothing more to be said, Jesse. <laughs> more to be said. I think that was such a great summary. I didn't, I was left speechless. I nominate Jesse as your no, successor. No, 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 no. Oh, no. He can have it. <laughs> is this, uh, in terms of the position, is, are you required to be there for a certain number of years, or... Is it like it's student in, council where you're voted in and it's a popularity contest and then... You should have seen what he promised to get yeah. this job. <laughs> there are probably... Yeah, what's your platform? Like <laughs> there are about 10 priests who work for the bishops at the bishops conference right now and we're typically on three-year contracts, but like anything with priests, it's all kind of a vague sort of notion. So I could be called home at any time or they could send me home at any time. Could or they, they could extend. Could they, extend? they could extend, mm -hmm. yeah. So right now I'm in halfway through a three-year contract. So. Right. And you're we'll from see. one of those dioceses that happens to have a, a few spare priests around him. We're in good shape. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so good. Don't take it for granted. Well, for right. sure. Right. 
Absolutely. Well, is uh, anything that you want to um, leave leave us with information? How about an awesome testimonial about oh, the yeah. Liturgical I Institute? Say, I would so. really uh, like to commend you for the work that you're doing here. I think oh. uh, we. My general sense is that after the council, there was a huge enthusiasm for studying liturgy, and there was a lot of it, and a lot of people went off and got graduate degrees and these things. But it's not quite so common nowadays, and the diocese is that have a hard time finding qualified people to, to work in their liturgy offices or to teach liturgy in seminaries and things like that. So I'm very, very um, excited about Cardinal George's vision, right? Mm-hmm. He was the one who founded this institute. Are you saying did. that if you get a liturgy degree that there's a very good chance that you'll have a job? Are you saying I that? feel I like that's think, what you're I saying. I'm probably saying that. I think that's yes. what you're saying. <laughs> Cha-ching. Oh, I mean, First you study liturgy, then you get the money. Yeah, then you get the, then you get the job. Man, working for the church, yeah. I don't know how much money you're going to get. No, but but there, uh, yeah. there is a and lot of job satisfaction. There's a legitimate job. need. And, there and, is a legitimate need. And uh, people have strong opinions about the liturgy, but we need people who have an understanding of it and understand the history and understand where to go to find answers to questions. And we don't need strong have, opinions. Not we need just gut reactions yeah. and yelling at each other, but an understanding of what the church has taught and what the church continues to teach and where to find those answers. And, and even just in our conversation right now, it's, it can be hard to talk about liturgy because it's, you know, what do you say and when do you say it and how do you say it? And it's important to have a strong um, background, not just of, you know, something to increase what you already feel, but just a, a general um, objective understanding of what is liturgy and what mm-hmm. does the church say. And I think it's very easy to start with that that visceral, like, oh, you know, like, right. yeah, I hate that you, music or right. I hate that architecture. Right. But I remember years ago I was working with a potential church building client, and the it was at a Catholic high school, and the the president of the school did not want the tabernacle in the church. It's like, this is already wanted somewhere else. And then I just casually explained to him the tabernacle as the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant and God's abiding presence doesn't limit him to a little golden box. We can still take the presence of God out to the world and to see them as friendly. And he said, oh, that's the Ark of the Covenant. Will that be good ecumenical affairs with our Jewish brethren? I said, probably. He said, all right, we're keeping it in. And it was done. What otherwise would have been this fist fight intellectually became, uh, oh, I get it. I understand mm-hmm. it. All right. Boom. Now, I remember Thomas says, uh, our it's mind, not always that easy, though. Our mind uh, moves and it rests in understanding and moves in lack of understanding or something. So you argue, argue, argue until you understand and then uh, rest, right? So that's where we try that's to nice be, is like to help people understand and that way they can rest in the fullness of the truth. Anyway, well, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Um, would you be able to stick around for our liturgy question? I think we could pull up a liturgy question for oh, We will put you on the spot, Father Andrew. All right. All right. A guess. liturgy question. Answered by the Supreme Court of the Supreme? U.S. Liturgy, no, Father Andrew. He is the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. <laughs> all right, I take it all back. Caveat, I haven't had any preparation for this. No, no, so no. You're it will be hitting me cold. All right. It will be good. I promise. Well, usually Chris does these I things. I might have to pack my bag. <laughs> no, no, no. It will be good. I promise. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. 
and they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Do we have a question, Jesse? We do have a question. And we have somebody to... Since Chris is not here, we have somebody to answer the question. Chief Justice of the Liturgy Supreme Court. Chief Justice of the Liturgical Supreme Court. Not wrong. All right. Here we go. This answer, you can just write it down. This is in stone. It will always 100% be correct. Who's it from? This is from Adam. Adam says, My pastor has been at our parish for 16 years, and he's always done baptisms during Mass, after the homily, and before the intercessions. Is that allowed? I heard somewhere that some time ago, only confirmation, holy orders, and matrimony were allowed to be celebrated during Mass. What is the rule on this? Yes, it absolutely can be done during Mass. It can be done. You heard it here, folks. Here's the interesting thing. The instructions are not very clear. The instructions encourage it to happen from time to time, maybe not every single Sunday, but uh, from time to time. But the instructions are kind of notoriously vague, and so people end up doing it differently from parish to parish. So last year, last November, when the bishops approved a new translation of the rite of infant baptism, they also approved an appendix that laid out step-by-step how you do a baptism during Mass. And we sent that to Rome, and this is going to be very interesting to see what happens. So for the bulk of the book, we're asking Rome's confirmatio, the confirmation of the translation. But this new appendix is not found in the Latin books. It's something we came up with, but we think it articulates what the Latin book wants you to do if you're a priest saying, so that technically is an adaptation to the rite. Doesn't really change things, but it's an adaptation of the book. It's not found in the book. So there, for that part, we're asking for Rome's recognitio, and so it's going to be very interesting to see how Rome responds to that. Hopefully they will sign oh. off on it, but yeah, so it should, if a priest wants to do that, have a baptism during Mass, this would make it much easier for him to know how to do it. Is there, um, the only one I can think of is preference, but is there, is, does the church say uh, a baptism should happen during Mass, or is it outside of Mass? I know both are valid, but is there a is there a best way it's, to do it? Because it's not a private event, but a community event. You used to hear that. There's some of that going on, yeah. I, there's kind of an encouragement. I don't know. I don't think the church tries to say one's better that, or anything like but that. But people definitely groan when they come to Mass and see all the babies. Oh, so I've heard. Mass yeah, is Mass is going to be long. Yeah, that's great. People are entering the church. I, I know. I just I want should to be happy. More souls in the mystical body. but Absolutely. Right. I would like to think that if the priest does it well and keeps things moving, it shouldn't add too much to the Mass. And if it isn't too frequent, then it should be a joyful event. Sometimes a family, though, would rather have something done privately, I think. Just or if you could get the parents to sit down and put their camera away instead of running around taking pictures of the baby all the time. Oh, it's like <laughs> a free-for-all. So there's I've so much more, it. though, in the, in the rite of infant baptism outside of the setting of Mass, too, in terms of mm. like the entrance and things that people no, don't often do. I think do. when it's done properly in Mass, those things basically all happen. Just it, it gets arranged a little bit differently. Some sure. happen at the very beginning and then some happen after the homily. Okay. Uh, so my, my recollection is that most everything's in there. Oh, okay. I think. 
Fantastic. Well, Adam, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Don't tweet Dennis because he doesn't use his Twitter account. That's true. No. Father Andrew, we always uh, end the podcast by, well, Jesse started this tradition of saying thank you and God bless. So would you mind saying that for us? Thank you and God bless. Perfect. Excellent. That's right. way better than Chris does it. Uh, really? You know, I think we should just replace it was Chris. To, oh, okay. All right. We have a, Chris, you're out. We can put you on a three-year contract, which your <laughs> bishop may or may not be able to renew. Is that the possible? The pay is zilch. <laughs> and the glory, the glory. glory you get some voice glory. notoriety out there, and that's about it. Yeah. And an occasional pie crust. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. You're Appreciate very welcome. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.